History of Africa by G.K. Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, No Agreement, Fela Kuti and Wole Shoyinka. We really do need to fire up that time machine we mentioned at the beginning of the previous episode. Between attending the first date of P-Funk's Earth Tour in the United States in 1976, and the One Love Peace concert in Jamaica in 1978, we have to make it over to Nigeria in 1977, specifically around the time of FESTAC, the second world Black and African Festival of Arts and Culture. Actually, we've already been there in spirit when we discussed Abdias do Nascimento's participation in the festival in episode 118. Someone else who could have attended in person but didn't was Fela Anikolapo Kuti. One of the greatest musicians of Nigerian, and indeed African history, he chose not to participate in the festival after having been involved in some of the initial stages of planning. He decried Festac as corrupt and staged what he called a counter-Festac at the Shrine, his nightclub where he regularly held court and criticized the Nigerian government. Many of the important artists who came to Nigeria for Festac made a point of going to see Fela at the Shrine, including festival headliner Stevie Wonder. Sun Ra, whom we recently introduced as a pioneer of Afrofuturism, declined to visit the shrine. Perhaps having come all the way from Saturn, he felt he'd journeyed far enough. But some members of his orchestra couldn't be convinced to stay away, and we can hardly blame them. But in the absence of that time machine, we can't follow suit. And given how the orchestra dressed, following their suits would be a tall order in any case. So we'll have to settle for exploring how Fela used his voice as a musical artist to critically reflect on post-colonial African politics from the 1970s until his death, just before the end of the century, in 1997. We have billed him alongside another kind of artist, Wole Shoyinka, a writer whose plays, poetry, and prose won him the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1986, making him the first Black winner of the prize. Shoyinka's writings also critically reflect on post-colonial African politics. It also just so happens that he and Fela were cousins, and not distant cousins either, but close enough to have spent some time together during their youth. Now, just as we have mentioned Festac before, this is not our first reference to Shoyinka. We began our episode on Leopold Senghor's with Shoyinka's famous critical quip regarding negritude, a tiger does not proclaim its tigritude, he pounces. There is some irony then in the fact that it was Shoyinka who convinced Senghor not to pull the Senegalese delegation out of Festac. The 1977 festival in Nigeria was a follow-up to Senghor's brainchild, the World Festival of Negro Arts, which was held in Dakar in 1966. Disagreements between Senghor and the Nigerian government over whether Arab delegations from North Africa should be mere observers, as Senghor thought appropriate, or full participants, as the Nigerian government decided, led to a threat of boycott by Senegal. In his memoir, You Must Set Forth at Dawn, Shoyinka recounts that his successful attempt to change Senghor's mind saved the festival from collapse. He also notes, though, that he himself withdrew from the festival. He was disconcerted by how artistic expertise was being overridden by the unqualified admiral in charge of the festival, for Nigeria's government at the time was a military government. Unlike his cousin, Shoyenka did not hold fast to this decision and came back to organize the festival's closing event, but the way that both of these talented cousins had trouble with Festac is symbolic of their struggles with post-colonial Nigerian and African politics more generally. Even without the benefit of that time machine, 
it will be helpful for telling the story of these two great Africana thinkers to go back to the 19th century, when one of their common ancestors, a Yoruba man named Kuti, grew up in Abiyokuta, the town where both Fela and Shoyanka would eventually be born. Kuti married a woman named Ekidan Efupeyin, but somewhere around 1848 she converted to Christianity and took the name Anne. This led to a rather rocky marriage, as Kuti strongly disapproved of her conversion. When they had a son, in 1855, Kuti consistently referred to him as Likoye, while Anne referred to him as Josiah Jesse. After Kuti died in 1863, Anne was free to raise Josiah as a Christian the way she wanted. Josiah was therefore educated by the Christian Missionary Society, and he eventually went into ministry. He also became known as a talented musician. He set Christian hymns to indigenous music, composed new hymns in Yoruba, and ultimately became the first known recording artist in Nigeria, once he recorded some of these Yoruba hymns in the 1920s. At some point before the 20th century began, though, he added Ransom to his name, likely naming himself after a British missionary. He was thus known as J.J. Ransom Kuti, and among his children were Israel Olodotun Ransom Kuti, the father of Fela, and Anne Lape Iabode Ransom Kuti, grandmother of Wole Shuyenka. Fela and Shuyenka are thus first cousins once removed. We have not traced this genealogy simply to explain how they were related. The story of the original Kuti's opposition to Christianity, the conversion of his wife, and the career of their musician son who sought to combine his Yoruba cultural heritage with being a Christian has resonant symbolism. It epitomizes the intense and prolonged grappling with the relative meaning and value of African and European ways that would come to characterize both Fela's and Shoyinka's artistic and intellectual interests. The next part of our story involves the importance of what we might call, with apologies to P-Funk, motherly connections. Fela refers to his mother in one of his songs as the only mother of Nigeria, and understanding his own greatness requires some understanding of why that grand claim is, in fact, plausible. She was born in the year 1900 as Francis Abigail Olofunmilayo Thomas, and was one of the first set of girls to attend the previously all-boys Abiyokuta Grammar School. That is where she met Fela's father, the aforementioned I.O. Ransomkuti. They fell in love while she was still relatively young, but it was not until 1925, after she went to study at a ladies' college in England, that they got married. While she was in England, she made the choice to stop using her Christian names and go by Funmilayo. She thus became Funmilayo Ransomkuti after her marriage. Much later in life, she would follow her son Fela's lead by replacing Ransomkuti with Anikulapo Kuti. One of the most glaring ironies of Fela's life in music is the fact that he often expressed troublingly anti-feminist sentiments even while adoring and admiring his mother, a pioneering feminist. He was also the product of a remarkably egalitarian marriage. With the loving support of her husband until his death in 1955, Fumilayo Ransom emerged as an activist and political figure of great importance in Nigeria. Both of Fela's parents were educators, and while his father served as principal of the Abiyokuta Grammar School, his mother taught kindergarten and eventually opened a primary school of her own. They were also activists, in part through their roles as educators, since they were involved in the formation of the Nigerian Union of Teachers in 1931. The organization's first president was Reverend Ransom Kuti, as Fela's father was known, given that he followed his own father in becoming an Anglican minister. The Reverend was the union's first president and continued to hold the role until shortly before his death. If that position facilitated his activism, the organization that enabled Mrs. Ransom Kuti to develop her own activist passion began in 1932 as the Abiyokuta Ladies Club. 
It was, in fact, the third such club she founded, having founded an earlier one in Abiyokuta shortly after returning from England, and then another in Ijebo Ode, a town where the reverend served as a principal before getting the job at Abiyokuta. At first, this newest ladies' club fit the normal pattern of such organizations as vehicles for elite women's social and charitable activities. In the 1940s, however, Mrs. Ransomkuti began to expand the organization's purposes through engagement with the non-elite women of the marketplace. She started with efforts to increase literacy, but this initial form of outreach seems to have had the effect of radicalizing Fela's mother. As her biographers put it, in this context of increasing interaction with the mostly poor and illiterate market women, Ransom Kuti confronted her own privileged status as a Western-educated elite. She became interested in the struggles that market women were experiencing and was motivated to struggle alongside them in order to bring about change. Even while it was still known as the Abiyokuta Ladies Club, the organization began challenging unfair decisions by the colonial administration. In 1946, its political nature was made clearer still with the change of its name to the Abiyokuta Women's Union. The union and its founder first attracted widespread attention by leading a set of protests targeting the Alake, the paramount chief in that portion of Yoruba land. The protests concerned taxes he levied on women and general corruption, but Ransom Kuti understood her fight with the Alake to be, at bottom, a fight with colonial rule. After all, the Alake's powers expanded under colonial rule precisely because the position fit into the British practice of indirect rule. Civil disobedience by the women was so effective that the Alake ended up abdicating the throne and living in exile, although he would later be reinstated. This story already demonstrates that Fela's famed anti-elitism and willingness to challenge authority owed much to his mother. In 1949, she made her organization into the Abiyokuta branch of a new national organization, the Nigerian Women's Union, which she served as president until she died. As the head of this union and another organization for women as well, the Federation of Nigerian Women's Societies, Ransom Kuti found herself traveling to various parts of Nigeria and establishing bonds that crossed ethnic lines. She argued consistently and prominently for women's right to vote and was herself involved with Nande Azikiwe's party, the NCNC, from the time of its founding. We discussed Azikiwe and this party in episode 103 of this podcast. Back then, we noted that the NCNC came to be associated with the Igbo in the eastern part of Nigeria, while Obafemi Awolowo's action group became associated with the Yoruba in the western part where Ransom Kuti lived. This makes the participation of both of Fela's parents in the NCNC even more remarkable, as it is clear that they joined to support the party's nationalist and democratic socialist aims rather than because of their ethnicity. When an NCNC delegation went to England in 1947 to object to a new constitution for the colony, Mrs. Ransom Kuti was the only woman included. When elections were held in 1951, based on a new constitution for the colony that came into force that year, Mrs. Ransom Kuti was the only female candidate. She was defeated. When she didn't receive the NC nomination in 1954 and again in 1959, she ran as an independent, and in 1959, she was taken to have hurt the NCNC by splitting the vote. This ended her relationship with the party, which had long been tense as she was critical of Azikiwe's leadership. She tried to create her own party, although that was short-lived. Despite these electoral frustrations, she was politically active, not just on the Nigerian scene, but in West Africa more generally. She was a friend of Kwame Nkrumah, and Fela never forgot the time that she introduced him to this pan-Africanist hero. She has been credited with playing a role in the founding of the Ghana women's movement, and also maintained a connection to the Sierra Leone women's movement. 
On a more global level, she worked enthusiastically with the Women's International Democratic Federation, a left-wing feminist organization founded in Paris. In the context of the Cold War, her work for this organization got her into trouble at home, as the WIDF was widely seen as a communist front. She was denied a passport by Prime Minister Tafewa Balewa, and in a letter of protest sent to various authorities, she linked this persecution not simply to red-baiting, but to her incessant demand that the women of Nigeria's north, from which Balewa hailed, should get the vote, something that didn't happen until 1977. While she was not herself a communist, it is true that one of her most notable writings was published in The Daily Worker, the newspaper of the Communist Party of Great Britain. Published while she was in England with the NCNC delegation, it argued that British colonialism eroded women's power and influence in Nigeria, something that historians have since documented more fully. We've spent considerable time introducing Fela's mother, given that her importance has often been insufficiently recognized. In a 1981 memoir entitled Ake, The Years of Childhood, Shoyenka did his part to change that. Speaking of the group, as he calls the local ladies' club, that eventually evolved into the Nigerian Women's Union, he recalls marveling at how an organization that began over cups of tea and sandwiches to resolve the problem of newlyweds who lacked the necessary social graces was becoming popular and nationwide, and tangled up in the move to put an end to the rule of white men in the country. But of course, looming even larger than Mrs. Ransom Kuti in the book is the woman he calls Wild Christian, his own mother, Grace Aniola Shoyenka, the niece of Reverend Ransom Kuti. She participated in the group, and we even find a depiction of her prevailing upon the Alake to do the right thing with regard to the taxes on women. Her very Christian and yet still syncretic religiosity is also an important theme of the book, as exemplified by her belief that J.J. Ransom Kuti, her grandfather, and her brother were able to interact authoritatively with spirits of the kind that populate traditional Yoruba cosmologies because of their deep faith. Though Shoyenka is the great-grandson of J.J., while Fela was simply a grandson, Shoyenka was born first in 1934. After attending the Abiyokuta Grammar School, he went to secondary school in Ibadan, where he then stayed to study at the University of Ibadan. From there, he ventured outside Nigeria, studying at the University of Leeds and moving after that to London. There, he began to blossom in what arguably remains his best-known vocation, playwriting. Two plays of his had been staged in England by the time he returned home to Nigeria in 1960, the year the country gained its independence. Indeed, his grand emergence as an African artist in Africa came with the staging of his play, A Dance of the Forests, on the date of independence, October 1, 1960, as part of the new nation's official celebration. We can take a moment to admire Shoyenka's sheer ambition as an artist. He directed the elaborate production and acted in it as well. The play attests to his boldness as a social critic. Relating together the spirit world and humans, as well as incarnations of humans in different times, the plot is too complicated for us to summarize here, but its prominent themes may be said to be the inglorious destructiveness of humans throughout time and the continued weight of past wrongs on the present. It's as if Shoyinka chose this occasion of Nigeria's independence to dampen rather than incite optimism. And it is especially interesting to consider the significance, from a pan-Africanist perspective, of the play's references to the legacy of the slave trade. The 1960s was a productive time for Shoyinka, who founded a theater company, wrote a number of plays, including one for television, took up academic positions at various Nigerian universities, and completed his first novel, The Interpreters. It is yet another of his works that can be described as difficult, though it doesn't combine distant times and planes of existence, like A Dance of the Forests. 
its seemingly more simple subject is a set of five friends, educated young men in the newly independent Nigeria. What makes it difficult is the plot, or the lack thereof, as it might be fair to say, since there is certainly no linear one. According to one literary critic, though, this is appropriate given the novel's themes. A certain confusion of effect is necessary to Shayanka's purpose, for he wishes to present us with a group of young men and women who are still in the process of clarifying their own identities. This way of reframing the book's complex structure could be extended to the nation as well. That is, the set of friends may stand for a nation still in the process of clarifying its identity. The Interpreters was published in 1965, as was one of his best-known plays, Kongi's Harvest, which treats that familiar theme of post-colonial African politics, the dictatorial president. It was staged the following year at the World Festival of Negro Arts in Dakar. If the mid-60s was thus a time of achievement, the late 60s was a difficult and trying time for Shoyinka and indeed for all Nigerians. This is the time of the Nigerian Civil War, during which Nigeria fought the secession of Biafra, a large chunk of eastern Nigeria and thus an Igbo-dominated territory. It was a devastating war, and Shoyinka spent much of it in solitary confinement, in prison for his efforts to promote peace. His cousin, Fela, on the other hand, was not yet the sophisticated political thinker and activist in song that he would later become. A song he recorded in Los Angeles during the war, Viva Nigeria, captures a simpler and apparently more opportunistic version of himself. We learn from Michael Veal's biography and study of Fela's music that the idea behind the song was to look like a team player with the government. The song was in favor of peace, but in a way that shone the best light on the government side of the conflict, so as to increase the chances of gaining financial support from said government. Fela certainly came to look back on the song with different eyes. He later expressed sympathy with the Biafran side of the war, condemning the oppression of Igbos and scorning the government's message of keeping Nigeria united. To keep Nigeria one, does it mean that innocent Nigerian women, children, and other innocent people must die? Do we have one Nigeria today? Let us rewind, though, and reintroduce the man who was, even at the time that he recorded Viva Nigeria, very much on the verge of becoming someone that nobody could ever again see as a tool of the Nigerian government. Fela was born in 1938 and was the third of the four Ransomkuti children. His three siblings all successfully pursued careers in the medical field. They were in fact all already in England studying, including his younger brother Beko, when Fela managed to convince his mother that what he should go to pursue in England was music. Fela therefore studied at the Trinity College of Music in London. This was in the late 1950s when Shoyenka too was in London, hence the fascinating tale of them sharing an apartment there for some time in 1958. Take note any filmmakers or playwrights out there who may be looking for a new subject. They performed together as well, with Fela providing musical accompaniment on trumpet while Shoyenka recited some of his poetry. Fela returned to Nigeria in 1963 and eventually formed Kula Lobitos, a band with whom he played a unique blend of high life and jazz. High life was a popular style of music originating in Ghana. According to Michael Veal, Fela's blend of that West African style with jazz involved a number of other diasporic musical influences as well. Veal counts three phases of musical evolution from 1965 to 1969, the first being the initial combination of high life and jazz, the second most prominently involving Afro-Latin influence, especially Cuban salsa, and the third involving the prominent incorporation of R&B influences, including James Brown. It is while on tour in Ghana in 1968 that Fela chose a new name for his unique Pan-African creation, Afrobeat. 
Obviously, this combination of musical traditions from across the Africana world is relevant for us, but Afrobeat acquired its name before being definitively infused with a newly radical spirit, one that would set Fela apart as one of the most passionately political artists in the history of recorded music. This intellectual infusion came about during a tour of the United States. Fela wound up stranded in Los Angeles thanks to bad relations with the tour's sponsors. Under these trying circumstances, Fela met and had his mind revolutionized by a woman named Sandra Smith, later known as Sandra Isidore. They fell in love, and while it is true that Fela had a wife and three children back home in Nigeria, it's also true that he stated from the outset before getting married that he would always have girlfriends. Sandra helped Fela get a regular gig and, more importantly, exposed him to the ideas of the Black Power movement. As our coverage of the ideas associated with that movement has shown, to grapple with the thinking of the Black Power movement is, in large measure, to grapple with African-American thought as it evolves under the influence of Malcolm X, especially in the wake of his death. It is thus no surprise that Fela has singled out X as the most important of all the thinkers to whom Sandra introduced him. He speaks of how, reading the autobiography of Malcolm X, he wished to be Malcolm X, how it pained him to know that this role model was already dead. Most intriguingly, he says that after reading X, everything about Africa started coming back to me. This discovery of Africa in Los Angeles may seem paradoxical and ironic, but it fits into a pattern of diasporic inspiration and leadership in Pan-Africanism that we've been tracing throughout the 20th century. An additional factor here would be the gender dynamics. We know Sandra's name because Fela chose to celebrate her intellectual influence upon him. He speaks about her not only as a source of information, but as someone who could instruct him well, given her thoughtful radicalism. He says that she gave him political reasons and that she was his advisor in a way that makes one think of Sandra as being for Fela something akin to what the Germans call a philosopher's Doktorvater, or in this case a Doktormutter. Yet in his valuation of what he treats as her greatest gift to him, that is, X's autobiography, he emphasizes, here was a true story about a man, and oh, I said, this is a man. Indeed, he reacts to hearing Sandra's story of assaulting a police officer and going to jail for it by thinking to himself, how can a woman do that and a man can't do it, a man like me? Fela thus was on a quest to establish a kind of strong black manhood, even while he was learning from a woman whom he recognized as a kind of authority. And actually, we saw that thanks to Fela's real mutter, that is, Fulmilayo Ransomkuti, radical pan-Africanism was part of his childhood. When he credits Malcolm X with bringing everything about Africa back to him, we must remember that Fela was thereby recovering his mother's ideals and example. An interesting parallel can be made between this and our discussion of X's own female mentors in Black radicalism and Pan-Africanism. Fela's shift in consciousness instigated by Sandra only gradually made itself felt in his lyrics. Indeed, the track often treated as the first true Afrobeat song is without words and distinguished only by its musical features. This was My Lady's Frustration, whose title attests to the importance of Sandra in his life, but also apparently the tensions his career caused in their relationship. Fela himself felt like it was the first African tune I'd written till then. One of the first songs to demonstrate this new African consciousness lyrically, after he got home to Nigeria in 1970, was Black Man Cry. It was sung in Yoruba, with some of the lyrics asking, When will be free from the shackles of slavery? Who is trying to convince me that my black complexion is inferior? There is nothing more beautiful than the black complexions you are all endowed with. One can tell it is an early track of Fela's precisely because it is sung in Yoruba, as he gradually left that behind for the relative accessibility of Nigerian pidgin. 
With the switch to Pigeon came cultural nationalist classics like Lady and Gentleman from 1972 and 1973, respectively. Let's start with Gentleman as a more straightforward example of the genre. Fela sings, I no be gentleman at all, I no be gentleman at all, I no be gentleman at all, I be Africa man original. Fela associates aspiring to be a gentleman with aspiring to be European, and proudly shows no interest whatsoever in that ideal. As for lady, he here likewise associates the idea of striving to be a lady with westernization. Possibly under the influence of his mother's decision to expand the outreach of the Abiyokuta Ladies Club all those years ago, he contrasts the aspiring lady with the market woman, clearly favoring the latter. But it is unclear what he's intending to describe in lady. The problem of women being invested in a class hierarchy that would set them apart as ladies rather than market women? Or is his true target what he takes to be the malign influence of Western feminism on some African women? Could it be both? Another dimension of his cultural nationalism was a very critical position on Christianity and Islam as religions of foreign origin. This is best captured in his song, Shuffering and Schmiling, which calls out religious leaders who live well off their flock while the people who follow them suffer. Suffer, suffer for world and joy for heaven, he says summing up the message he perceives in both of the proselytizing Abrahamic faiths. Fela, meanwhile, developed his own unique and pan-Africanist take on traditional Yoruba or West African religion. The shrine featured, well, a shrine, where he kept a bust of Nkrumah and photographs of such heroes as Patrice Lumumba and Malcolm X. He regularly poured libations to these figures. To explore his cultural nationalism is one thing, though. Fela and his man, now called the Africa 70 rather than Kula Lobitos, was also becoming political in the sense of challenging the government rather than seeking its favor. In his book, Arrest the Music, Fela and His Rebel Art and Politics, Tejuman Olanian points to the importance of the music he made in response to a police raid on his compound in 1974, compositions in which we can see both the humorous and serious sides of Fela's oppositional stance. One way he flaunted his lack of concern for middle-class respectability, despite his elite background, was his love of cannabis. In addition to the charge that underage girls were hanging out at the compound, the police pretext for their April 1974 raid was hemp peddling. At a certain point, unable to find weed on the premises, there was an attempt by the police to plant the evidence, but Fela grabbed it and swallowed it. The police determined to use Fela's excrement as evidence against him, leading to his song, Expensive Shit. Normal people and even animals would stay away from theses, but these tyrannical cops are different, a shameful aberration in the general order of things. The song Alagban Close is less humorous and, at least as Alanian sees it, much more philosophical. We can indeed relate it to the conception of justice explored in Plato's Republic, according to which justice is doing one's part in a well-ordered structure. Describing different professions, Fela and his chorus of singers sing, Never mind, I do do my part, I be human being like you. Then after describing abuses of power at the Alagban police department in jail, the song's final repeated refrain is, uniform na cloth na tailor de soam, meaning that the uniforms worn by the police are made of cloth like any other clothing, they're not magic. Indeed, it's only possible to wear the uniform thanks to someone else, namely a tailor, doing their part rather than abusing their power. This kind of cutting authority down to size became a specialty of Fela's. Predictably, this led to further conflict with the authorities. His song, Kalakuta Show, dramatically relates a vicious police invasion of Fela's compound in November of 1974. Fela referred to this compound as the Kalakuta Republic, 
thus treating it as a sovereign territory from which he could powerfully contest the Nigerian state. The attack described in that song was distinguished by the police's usage of tear gas and axes, yet it was next to nothing in comparison to another attack on Kalakuta in 1977, not long after the closing of Festac. We began this episode contemplating the fun of seeing Fela at the shrine during his counter-Festac, but what happened in the wake of his expression of an anti-governmental stance during that international event was nothing like fun and everything like horrid and traumatic. It is thought to have been in significant part an act of payback for the song Zombie, in particular, one of his biggest hits yet. Fela satirized the mindlessness of the military, and thus also the military government, by comparing them to the undead that can be controlled by a zombie master. It's estimated that around a thousand soldiers descended on Kalakuta on February 18, 1977. There was brutality and rape and flames that burned down the compound once and for all. The woman we have treated as an unheralded star, Fulmilayo Anikulapo Kuti, as she was known by then, was thrown in her old age from a window which broke her hip. It was over a year later, in April of 1978, that she died, but Fela very reasonably linked her death with the fact that she never quite recovered from the incident in 1977. The arson that destroyed the property was blamed by a government inquiry on an exasperated and unknown soldier. This resulted in one of Fela's most powerful songs of all, entitled Unknown Soldier. This is the song in which he proclaims Fumilayo the only mother of Nigeria. It is a song of heartbreak, featuring the repeated lyric, Dem kill my mama. It is, however, also his opportunity to express her importance as a part of the history of Africana thought, political mama, ideological mama, influential mama. As if he knows that listeners might wonder what he did to incur such wrath, Fela specifies without shame, what didn't this Fela do? Meaning, what is it that Fela did? Fela talk about soldiers, flogging civilians for streets. Fela talk about government, wasting money for Festac. If the goal of the destruction of Kalakuta was to silence Fela once and for all, it was a hopeless enterprise. He calls out the government for their sham of an inquiry in lines that illustrate his rhetorical strategy of critique. These equate both the fire that was set to destroy Kalakuta and the absurd excuse of blaming an unknown soldier for the atrocity as instruments of magic. Them bring flame, Fela sings, them bring hat, them conjure, them bring rabbit. He goes on to use the phrase unknown soldier as the basis for a more general political critique. We get unknown police, we get unknown soldier, we get unknown civilian, all is equal to unknown government. The government's subterfuge is here turned back upon itself. An unjust government is an unknowable government, a government that you can't trust. Unknown soldier is surely a testament to Fela's bravery, something he attributed in another song to Nkrumah's philosophical influence, quoting the Ghanaian leader as having proclaimed the secret of life is to have no fear. But the song is also about the role of epistemology in political life. It uses satire to make a point about knowledge and trust. A power that refuses to make itself known cannot be held accountable. Fela, as a forthright cultural nationalist, could never have been accused of such ambiguity. He claimed a self-knowledge rooted in African identity and expressed that identity using an instrument with its own power, music. This allows for a final comparison with his cousin, Wole Shinka, and in particular what is probably his most famous prose book, Myth, Literature, and the African World. He said that its central concern was to transmit through analysis of myth and ritual the self-apprehension of the African world. That's a goal we've seen many Africana thinkers exploring from a variety of perspectives, including the ethno-philosophy that was, let's remember, enjoying a heyday at about the same time. 
With our discussions of Sun Ra, P. Funk, Bob Marley, and Fela Kuti, we've hopefully conveyed to you the connections between Africana thought and the work of musicians, who appear more often in posters hanging on dorm room walls than in discussions of philosophy. Then again, let's not underestimate the revolutionary potential of dorm rooms. We've seen already how student activism led to such things as the Black Power Movement. Actually, Wole Shirinka gives us another example of the same sort of thing. In 1952, along with six other friends, he founded a confraternity called the Pirates, spelled with a Y where you'd expect an I. They took on colorful names. Their leader, Shayinka, was known by the rather bombastic moniker Captain Blood, and they proclaimed commitment to anti-colonialism and social justice. The Pirates, or as they are also more officially known, the National Association of Sea Dogs, were for a long time Nigeria's only university-based confraternity, but rival organizations eventually sprung up in the 1970s. During the 1980s, these organizations, which came to be more commonly referred to as campus cults, began to be associated with violence, from hazing and intergroup conflict to the terrorizing of the uninvolved, as well as organized criminal activity. Considering the anti-colonial dimension of the confraternity's point of origin, it is sadly symbolic of the pitfalls of post-colonial institution building that this kind of organization should come to be associated with violence and corruption. Another, arguably more successful example of student activism in the name of justice was unfolding in South Africa. There, the more straightforwardly named South African Students' Organization was a platform for its president, Steve Biko, to rise to prominence in the fight against apartheid. Like Fela, Biko would feel the full weight of his government's oppression. Ultimately, he would be murdered in a prison cell, one of the most notorious killings of the 20th century. This cut off the life of an articulate and original thinker. He wove the existentialism of Sartre and Franz Fanon, and the reconception of Christianity known as Black Theology, to formulate an ethos he called Black Consciousness. And that's what we'll cover next time on a series that, despite having featured Fela Kuti, cannot be beat, The History of Africana Philosophy. (laughs) ¶¶